Welcome to another episode of Theory of Enchantment podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. In this podcast, we sat down with Seth Godin, the marketing guru and author of the book, This Is Marketing, among other many bestsellers. Now, I have to be upfront with you guys. I recorded this episode on a Zoom uh, sort of like, you know, online conversational platform. And so there are certain moments in the interview where the audio isn't the best. So I apologize for that in advance. But overall, it's an incredible interview with a lot of new content and new information from Seth that really provides some expertise on marketing, on approaches to entrepreneurship. Um, as many of you know who have spoken to me, his podcast, Akimbo, really got me through some of the early days of creating my startup. And so I wanted to thank him for that and really, you know, just pick his brain on some ideas he might have in general about the world of business and entrepreneurship. So that's what this particular episode is about. As always, I hope you enjoy, share with your friends and family, share on social media, and spread the good word about the theory of enchantment philosophy. Here's the interview with Seth Godin. Thank you for doing this. I'm so honored to be on the list of the other people you've interviewed, and congratulations on what you're building. Thank you. I, I can't. It's very surreal. I can't believe I'm, I'm meeting you um, in a certain sense, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out. So I just have a couple questions uh, for you, just some context, and I talked a little bit about this in, in the email. When I first created my startup, I didn't know what my market was. I knew I had a product, uh, but I didn't know what the market was. And so in the first few months, the process was all about going through the struggle or the challenge of finding a market uh, that I could sell to. And I was listening to your, I somehow found Akimbo, your podcast, and it really helped uh, calm me down and, <laughs> and really, you know, helped uh, give me uh, the right mentality to know that first of all, other people are going through this as well. Um, and that it really was a day to day process. And so I want to thank you for, for creating this podcast, you know, it's really been a help for me and I'm sure it's been, um, a help for other entrepreneurs as well. So my first question is, I'm just curious, like what inspired you to, to create Akimbo? Uh, you did. Okay. What you just told me is why I do it. You know, we each have this opportunity now that never used to exist. Here's a microphone. You could talk to anyone in the world who wants to hear you. You can't talk to anyone in the world who doesn't want to hear you. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, two or three billion people who could listen if they wanted to. Do you have anything to teach them? Do you have anything to share? I got nothing to sell, but do I have anything to teach them? Well, yeah, I do. And so right behind me is the little studio in the shower that I filled with foam where I record the podcast every week. And it's a treat. It's a privilege. I can't believe that someone uh, as hardworking and compassionate as you took the time to listen. That's why I made it. So, so someone like you would listen. Is there, do you ever encounter challenges in terms of producing content because there's so much packed into your episodes and as someone who's who's also a fellow podcaster, I wonder, you know, how do you generate content or is it just an organic process, you know, that, of stuff that comes to you? Yeah, I haven't met anybody who was uh, normally abled who had talker's block. Everybody, 
<laughs> right. Capable of saying something. So the question is, can you say something worth listening to? Mm-hmm. It feels to me like the way you do that is by saying a whole bunch of things worth not worth listening to and then edit those out. Okay. And so I've blogged every day for the last million years, 7,500 blog posts in a row. And my blog doesn't come out on Tuesday at 4 a.m. because it's ready. It comes out because it's Tuesday at 4 a.m. Day after day. I know there's going to be a blog post. Once you know there's going to be a blog post, the part of your brain that doesn't want to be embarrassed tries to come up with something worth writing, worth reading. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true with the podcast. So I usually record the podcast on Wednesdays or Saturdays. And a couple of days before, my brain is going, uh-oh, there's a podcast coming up. And I start to notice things more clearly. And that noticing, uh, that's what I do. That's my job. That's amazing. Um, so I guess my next question is a, is a, a bigger level, sort of 10,000-foot question. I'm always curious what my guests answer um, to this question is. It's 2020. It's New Year. It's February. So what are you excited to teach in 2020, and what are you excited to learn in 2020? Well, we've laid out our teaching schedule, and it's not – there aren't very many things in it that will shock people. That okay. I've been spending 30 or 40 years teaching people to change the culture, to lead, to build something bigger than themselves, to be creative, to set and achieve goals. We haven't run out of people who need that help. So sure. we're going to keep doing that. Um, I've thought about teaching juggling um, okay. because I know how to teach juggling. I'm writing about juggling in my new book, but I'm not actually going to run a juggling workshop. Okay. Uh, and what am I excited about is I can't believe I get to do this. This is what I've always wanted to do. I've wanted to do this for 42 years and I still get to do it. And even if only one person is going to learn, I'm going to keep doing it. You've discovered you don't need a permit. You don't need a license. You don't need permission from the government. You can just grab your microphone and go. Mm -hmm. And that's a really generous thing for you to do. So speaking of uh, education in general, which is, you know, something that both of us do, I remember listening to a particular episode of Akimbo where you talked about how historically education has been set up as a factory and not really to, for optimal value, to actually really educate, um, especially young people. And I know that both politically and culturally, there have increasingly been conversations about reforming the way capitalism works and especially uh, you know, as it pertains to education. Do you think that that is something that is both truly possible and, uh, and probable? Or do you think it's daunting, uh, given where we are just in America with our, our hyper-consumerist sort of mindset? Well, I would say two things are true. The first one is that capitalists have way more power than most people think, mm-hmm. um, that they have buyed and paid for a lot of influence. Mm-hmm. The boundaries with the regulations, they learn to work with workplace safety and with minimum wage and with requirements that they don't make things that give people cancer. They learn to work with uh, reporting requirements. They learn to work with the fact that indentured servitude is against the law. So we're not in this pure state where these magic capitalists are saying, how dare you regulate anything? We're already regulating things. Sure. And I think that the public is starting to say, wait a minute, the Gini index is too big. 
the outrageous behavior is too too loud. We need to regulate it more. Mm-hmm. And we can have a good conversation about which more is the right more, right? Like what's the best way to regulate carbon? Because it's pretty clear that the free market can't figure it out without our help. Mm-hmm. So uh, just going back here to my notes, um, how were you able, because I'm in the business of education, right? Essentially. And I kind of know the answer to this question, but if you could sort of walk through some of the explicit steps of how you did this, how were you able to uh, create a sustainable business um, in the education, in, in the education world, given all the challenges that we, that we encounter because of capitalism and also because of bureaucracy and a factory like sure. mindset and stuff like that. Well, the biggest one is that I don't do education. I do learning. Okay. What's the and distinction they're, between? They're, they're really different. Okay. Education is something we deal with. We get through in exchange for a certificate. Okay. That okay. We, we trade our time for a test. And if we do well on the test, we get a piece of paper. And the piece of paper gets us the right to do something else. So no one goes to law school to learn the law. They go to law school so they can be a lawyer. Mm. And if you gave those students the choice of spend three years in the building or just give me the money and you can be a lawyer tomorrow, mm-hmm. they'd all choose to be a lawyer tomorrow. But if you're in the business of learning, learning is something we do because we want to. You we learn to ride a bike. We learn to speak in complete sentences. Learning is voluntary. Learning requires an enrollment. Learning does not care about grades. Learning is something we all know how to do already. And so what I am doing here is building a learning institution that sticks its tongue out at education and accreditation every day because we are proudly unaccredited. We don't want to be in the business of offering people pieces of paper and there are no tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think it, by shifting from education to learning that you are in fact uh, getting more people who were thinking traditionally and educate through an education lens to think differently about how they're approaching that piece? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So my Stop Stealing Dreams manifesto has reached almost uh, 4 million people so far, okay. counting the half million people who've seen the video. The uh, We have 24,000 alumni so far of our various learning interventions. Those people are telling other people. So it ripples. It's not a big thing yet, but it's my contribution. And Mm -hmm. if people steal my ideas, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) So I I read your book, This is Marketing. um, And I know you talked a lot about, you, you said specifically that status is the engine of culture. And there are two primary ways of the of seeing that looking at status one was through the lens of dominion and the other was through the lens of affiliation right um do you think that one is better than the other and do you think that there is a more dominant way of looking at it right now uh let's say broadly speaking in america well i I picked affiliation for me that's Mm -hmm. what i like Mm -hmm. but clearly the narrative of dominance is on the upswing in our current culture mm-hmm. that uh, all you have to do is watch any presidential debate. Sure. All you have to do is think about pro wrestling or 
the dominance of pro sports, which they're all about one person beating the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I played varsity frisbee in college, the rule was you call your own fouls. That if you foul someone, yeah. you you call it, they don't call it. And today that's controversial and almost impossible to pull off because the world has changed. Mm-hmm. But the world will change back. And okay. it comes and it goes. I just think I know that living in an affiliation culture is way more fun and satisfying than living in a dominance culture. And do you think that social media operates according to an affiliation sort of culture? Actually, both. So you get affiliation in the sense of what's your friend network like? Mm -hmm. Who is listening to you? But because they engineered dark patterns into Twitter and Facebook, Mm -hmm. you can, quote, win at social media by dominating other people, Mm. by being a troll, by having bigger numbers, by picking fights. These are the shortcuts to building a following online. I refuse to do any of those things Mm -hmm. because I'm not trying to make my number as big as possible. I'm just trying to do the work I'm proud of. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking now a little bit from a, about a tactical question. Um, I know that you're a pioneer of uh, permission marketing. um, And one of the things that I'm challenged with as I try to, sell my curriculum to different verticals is the uh, prospect of cold calling. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you see, do you see cold calling as a type of the opposite of permission marketing or is it a part of permission marketing? And do you have any tips to offer like entrepreneurs on that, on that process itself? Yeah. Cold calling is spam, spam, okay. spam, spam. It's very clear that cold calling is spam. And Email spam is much more common because it doesn't take any effort to cold call everybody with an email. It takes effort to cold call someone with a phone, but it is not required. It is not required to cold call people. That you can grow a worthy business by doing work that other people talk about. Mm -hmm. If other people are talking about your work, then you don't have to call anybody. Okay. And so, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, there's a a bakery on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that has a line out the door. Mm -hmm. They have a line out the door because the owners of the bakery cold called people? No. Of course not. Right. They have a line out the door because someone who came there and loved it wrote about it in a guidebook and some tourist saw it in the guidebook and decided it was important and on and on and on it went. Mm -hmm. The way you do all that is by making something that people put in a guidebook, right? Well, the same thing works in a B2B setting, which is how do we create something? You know, like, so Harvard has an education uh, program, a PhD program for educators. The only people who take it are people at the top of their game in education. How much time does Harvard spend cold calling people to get them to apply? Mm -hmm. None. They built something that graduates talk about incessantly. They have a posture for evangelizing. And that is the imperative, because if you need to cold call your way to success, it's gonna burn you out. I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that with the fact though th- that the vertical, one of the verticals that I'm selling or attempting to selling to, which is, which is schools, it's, it's so bureaucratic and so, you know, um, 
just challenging to get into, but you would still say that like, it's about, it's more about affiliation than it is about, you know, cold calling administrators no. or, you know, stuff like that. Well, no, it's not, you're, you're mixing two things together. First of all, you don't have to pick a vertical where you don't have a strategy, right? You don't have to pick a vertical that requires cold calling, pick your own vertical. Mm -hmm. But second, you can use dominance to make it so that any principal who isn't using what you do is worried that she's going to get fired. Okay. Right. So for example, a friend of mine built a company in the United Kingdom that did coaching training for teachers mm -hmm. at schools. Well, once a few schools are using it, teachers talk about it. Now there's only two kinds of schools, schools that have the training, schools that don't. Mm -hmm. and if you're a school that doesn't have the training, parents and others are making you feel inadequate. They're exerting dominance over you. They're making it clear that your status is going down because you don't have this thing, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, or let's say, for example, you wanted to sell, excuse me, let's say you wanted to sell uh, water tests mm -hmm. to schools to see if there's lead in the drinking fountain. If you went into these schools, just a few, and tested and found that they had lead and you published in the New York Times or anywhere your list of which schools and how much lead they have, mm -hmm. do you think your phone would ring? Right? Did you make yeah. any cold calls? No, you yeah. did not make yeah. any cold calls. You're using status and dominance against a desire to affiliate among people who need to get back in line. Mm -hmm. And that is different than dialing for dollars and hoping that you're going to get somebody on the phone who's actually going to trust you and listen to you. They're not going to trust you because they never heard of you before. Right. Um, sorry to keep harping on this, but I guess my, oh, okay. my, <laughs> my, one of my follow-up questions would be, in the situation of the sort of lead in the water example, um, you don't think that there's a possibility that like schools in my case would be resentful of the fact that I published them on a list. I didn't know you were trying to be popular with schools. I thought you were trying to change school. Well, you yes. yes. Change them to be popular at the same time. People sure. don't look forward to change. They're going to do it because they have to, because sure. something got their attention that wasn't you needing their attention. It was a constituent who already had the first 10 or 15 years, the internet was showing up in companies. Most people did not want it to be there because mm -hmm. it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Right. And it work all the time and your internet connection is unstable and this and this and this and this. people weren't, yay, it's here. They're, what are we going to do with this? But right. they had to do it because if they didn't, they felt like they were falling behind. So can you talk a little bit about the criteria for finding, uh, I know you talk about this and this is marketing, but the criteria for finding those, for finding and sustaining the energy of those people, the, I think you call them neophiliacs, right. who are excited about new stuff. Exactly. Um, so, so what are some strategies that you recommend for trying to find those, for finding those people? Right. The easiest thing is for them to find you. Okay. So if you go to a teacher's conference and stand up and say, I have something new. You want to hear about it? Most people don't, but some people do. And so the kind of person that's interested in something new, you know where they go? 
teacher conferences. Mm. <laughs> and there yes. you are. So yes. you're not cold calling, you're welcome. And you are announcing new, 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 new. It's only two or three years later that you show up at a conference and say, I have something proven. Right. But first you start by saying, I have something new. Mm -hmm. And people show up for that, right? Like, you know, you and I are talking in February. There's a whole bunch of people who used to be running for president who aren't running for president anymore. Mm -hmm. Why would someone support I'll just pick Marianne Williamson or Andrew Yang, right? Mm -hmm. Never been in politics. Most people have never heard of them. They're not going to win. Why sure. support them? Because they're new. Right. And the problem these folks have is once they stop being new, the people who supported them because they were new don't support them the same way because they're not new anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a chasm in between this is new and this is working. And that's the hard part. How do you get through that moment? But that's a conversation for a different day. Sure, sure. And I love, by the way, the piece where you expounded upon that in the book. Um, uh, so I highly recommend for anyone listening, if you haven't read This Is Marketing, please definitely uh, go read it. Um, so some studies show, and I work with this demographic, that Gen Zers, as they come out of high schools and out of colleges and into the workforce, they will be increasingly dealing with anxiety and depression um, and other mental health issues, in part because of overexposure to social media, in part because of certain parenting approaches that weren't necessarily the healthiest. Um, given everything that you've, you've taught over the past few years about marketing and starting a business and um, you know, entrepreneurship, is there any uh, are there any set, is there any set of advice that you would give to this demographic given that they're dealing with a lot of these mental health issues? Yeah, no, I see you and I hear you. And to anyone who's in that position, uh, my heart goes out to you and I hope you get some professional, not amateur like me, actual help. Mm -hmm. But as an amateur, I will tell you this. One way we can approach life is wait till you get a feeling and then do the work. Mm -hmm. And the other way we can approach life is do the work and hope you get a feeling as a result. And so if you show up doing something generous for someone you care about, even when you don't feel like it, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, one day soon you'll feel better. But if you wait until you feel better before you do anything, it's going to be a long time. Mm. It sounds like you're really esteeming the value of service, which I love. Um, and I've personally been impacted by, you know, volunteering in my personal life and so which is something I started a, a little bit over a year ago. So I, I definitely concur. I can say that volunteering and being of service uh, with whatever you build in entrepreneurial context and with whatever you do really does have amazing dividends and an amazing outcome, not only on the person that you're serv servicing, but also on yourself. Um, That's right. And it doesn't have to be at a soup kitchen, which would be great. Yeah. But like, here you are with this podcast. Last time I checked, you're not getting rich running your podcast. No. <laughs> right? You're right. doing it because it's generous. And as a result, I got to meet you. So I'm thrilled by that. Likewise. Um, okay, so my last question, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, my last question is, so just some context first. So Theory of Enchantment believes in the power of pop culture uh, and the believes, believes in the power of using uh, the values of pop culture. And by pop culture, I mean films, music, books, etc., cetera, um, to teach people about the human condition, uh, to teach people how to better their lives and have better relationships with people. So all that being said, 
my question for you is if you had to choose what are your top three movies of all time (laughs) (laughs) i'm totally unprepared for this okay ready (laughs) yeah uh monty python and the holy grail so i can go okay Uh, He's clapping on screen for those of you who are That's watching. not clapping. What do you? What is that? Coconuts. Oh, I have to. I have to watch this. I don't know the reference. The scene with the coconuts is one of the best expositions of uh, medieval economics you will ever learn. <laughs> okay. The second one is the movie Memento. Okay, I also haven't seen it. You can't see Memento without thinking really hard for a really long time. Okay. And the third one's easy. It's The Wizard of Oz because mm-hmm. it's one of the only movies with a strong young female protagonist who isn't violent. It's a movie about finding your path forward. It's a movie about not getting tricked by the powers that be. It is a profound statement on both the human condition and American economics. Mm -hmm. And you can easily see it 20 times and find a different thing every time. It's a miracle. That's awesome. I want to go rewatch Wizard of Oz now uh, in in light of your comments. Well, Seth, thank you so much for your time and for agreeing to, to do this interview for joining the theory of enchantment podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And, and I also have to say, and I obviously, you know, don't need to tell you this, but I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. It really positively benefits entrepreneurs like myself. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chloe. Keep making this ruckus. It truly matters. It's good to know you. We'll you as well. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Today's quote is a full poem by the great legendary Walt Whitman, entitled, O Me, O Life, and it goes as follows. O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I, and who more faithless, of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean, of the struggle ever renewed of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest me intertwined. The question, O me, so sad recurring, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists, an identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you, may contribute a verse. That makes for one more episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. Thank you for listening.